0: Hi and welcome to the Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and I'm happy you're joining me for my twentieth episode of the Big Schmear. Today, I'm going to be talking with Sonat Birniker Hart, president of Koval Distillery, Chicago's first distillery since the mid 1800s. It's Friday morning and I'm with my engineer and the president of Koval in the basement of their production facility. It's actually a really cool spot to do an interview and very spacious. I want to get right into our conversation, so let me give you a brief intro to my guest and then we'll start right in. Dr. Sanat Birnicker Hart received her PhD from the University of London and spent a decade teaching and lecturing in the US and Germany. In 2008, she decided to focus on a different lifestyle, and she and her husband, master distiller Robert Biernecker, founded one of the first urban craft distilleries in the US, Koval Distillery. Sonnet is also the co founder of Kota Distilling Technologies, a distillery startup consulting firm. There's a lot more I can say about Sonnet, but I think you'd rather hear from her directly. Sonnet, welcome to the Big Shmir. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to have you as my guest. I have to confess to my listeners that I'm a huge fan of this company. Sonnet and I met a number of years ago while I was working on a program that was to incorporate pairings of herring and spirits. We met over a 10 a.m. tasting. It was a very impressive meeting, and needless to say, we went with Koval whiskeys and herring. It was a hugely popular event. And I think it was maybe just this past summer that you were filming a commercial in my apartment building, in the lobby, I was I was like, whoa, are they following me? And where are the free samples? Um, so that was kind of cool. Anyway, I promised my listeners that you're going to do the talking. So let's, let's start and talk about the company. I want everyone to get as excited about Koval as I am. And maybe we'll start with a little bit more about you. So here you are in Europe, or maybe the U.S., and you have this great academic career going on. Tell me, what made you switch to doing you know starting up a company a company
1: of a distillery company that seems to be a hugely different switch (laughs) well i feel that life has many chapters and uh, one can live each chapter to the fullest and i enjoyed being a professor I taught uh, in Germany and, and on the East Coast, and Ger- German-Jewish studies was mainly my focus. And I had wonderful students, and I I wrote about the topic quite a bit, but... It came to a point where I was married and I was pregnant and I feel that that's a new stage in some ways and it causes one to reflect on what one wants when one becomes a mother and has a family. And I wanted to be close to home. And that was really a huge priority for me and home is Chicago. And so I was living in D.C. at the time with my husband and he's a very adventurous individual. and. So my husband and I were talking about whether we wanted to buy a home in D.C. and settle down. Uh, And and quite frankly, that talk is really about, do you want to settle down Mm -hmm. where you are? And so we looked at a number of homes in our price category, and we were really not very excited. And we started thinking maybe we should just be where we want to live. And that was Chicago. But that meant giving up our careers. My husband was the deputy press secretary for the Austrian embassy, and I had a tenured professorship. Mm. But uh, we felt that, you know, where you live is a very important thing. I mean, one of the, the names of God is even Macomb, which means place. I feel that place is very important and I feel that family is also very important and in the society that we live in I think that family sometimes takes a back seat and people they go off and they move different places for college university they travel far and wide and and then they settle down very far away from home and I did that but i did not want to continue doing that when i had my own family so we moved back to chicago in fact we moved back into my parents home (laughs) (laughs) so we really went home i was in my brother's bedroom with a brand new baby and doing that gave us this you know the strength and the help to be able to start a business from scratch and we decided to start Chicago's first distillery since the mid 1800s because my husband grew up distilling as a as a child. I, I Not your average weird, way to grow up. <laughs> no, but <laughs> his his grandparents have a, a functioning distillery and winery in Austria, and so it was chores for him to help with the fruit and processing the fruit, and and it was a business, and so he was involved in it uh, from a very young age, and so had the knowledge as to how to do it. He never thought he would do it for his <laughs> life. I mean, he went and got a PhD as well. I think he was one of the first in the fa- his family to have a PhD. But now he's one of the ones carrying on the family tradition of distilling. So it was really about coming home. And since I didn't have ruby slippers, I just had to make it happen.
0: And coming home, it seems in a way also for your husband, so full circle for him. And that's a great, great story, actually. And so I think people are, some people might be wondering, what is Beth thinking? You know, talking about spirits, whiskey, and what's the Jewish connection here? And and I think they've already got a sense that there's some here. So I have lots of questions. Maybe one question would be: um, Tell me about the name of Koval and how that came about.
1: Sure. Well, when we were trying to think of a name for the company, we we knew that we were going to be moving back to Chicago. And at the time when we were living in D.C., we were visiting my great-uncle Sigmund, uh, who's a musicologist in Brooklyn, at Brooklyn College, and he was in his late 90s. And so we would go visit him every weekend or as often as we could. And knowing that we would be leaving, we knew that we might not see him again. Mm-hmm. And so it was very... It was it was a very bittersweet meeting. We went, and we saw him. We spent an entire day with him, and talking the whole time. And, and we were speaking in German because he's from Vienna, and he loved talking to us in German. And and so. He was telling us all these stories, and one of the stories he told us was about my great grandfather, who actually saved his life and got him out of Austria in the very last minute, and brought him to Chicago, where he went to University of Chicago actually to study music. And it was really he was on the last boat uh, wow. to to get out. But so he has a very warm feeling in his heart about my great grandfather, Monic, and so he was telling me about him and said how. You know, when when we told him we were leaving academia, we were moving to Chicago to start a uh, distillery, he says, Ah, oh, nagi! And then he said, That sounds like a fabulous adventure. And I thought he wouldn't be so into it because he's such an academic, but he actually thought it was a wonderful idea. And he said, That reminds me of Monic, your great grandfather. And he said, Because Monic, when he was young, he walked down the stairs one day in Vienna and he says, Mom, I'm moving to Chicago, I'm starting a company. Europe's over. And this was at the turn of the century. This was before World War I. So he wasn't, this, you know, this was when Vienna was, you know, Mm -hmm. we're talking cultural center of the world in many ways. And it was a great place for Jews to live. I mean, you had the Kaiser walking around saying that anti-Semitism was the Dummheit des Jahrhunderts, which is like the stupidity of the century. So you were living in a place that was very welcoming on many levels, even though there was a lot of anti-Semitism You know, that was a given. So to have there be other opportunities there, it was a great place to live. So he left, moved to Chicago, started a battery company in the city. And uh, when he did that, people in his family gave him the nickname Koval. And I said, well, why would they do that? And Koval in many Eastern European languages means smith or blacksmith. But in Yiddish, it has a little extra meaning to it, which means someone who, like a blacksmith, forges something or forges a head. And so does something out of the ordinary as a bit of a black sheep in the family. And so with that, he got this nickname Koval, and I'd seen his books in in my parents' library that had an ex-libris of a blacksmith, and I never understood why, because I said, you know, he's an electrician. I mean, he, (laughs) he works with batteries and things like that. But then it all made sense. And so as we were leaving Brooklyn to go back to D.C. to finish packing up and to go to Chicago, we were thinking of a name for the company. We said, you know, Koval makes a lot of sense because... You know, people think we're a little crazy to be leaving our careers to start a distillery. And we're doing something out of the ordinary and forging ahead. And also, Robert learned how to distill from his grandfather, whose last name is Shmid, which means blacksmith. Oh, my. So it really connects everything. So it was beshered. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my. But I will say, distilling has everything to do with Jews. And I'll tell you why. Okay, And I'm it actually ready. has to do with Jewish women. Oh, I like it better. There you go. Because the... Person who actually made the first still, and this is in ancient Egypt. Really? Funny enough, was a Jewish woman. Oh, and um, she was called, I think, uh, something like Maria the Jewess. But and there are medieval texts that refer to her construction of a still that was used to distill, you know, tinctures or or various sort of medicinal products. But they were distilled products Whoa. so we actually owe distilling in general to a Jewish woman well good for us <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that's fabulous so tell me where well a couple of things so I'm sure there were a number of people who thought you were just nuts to do this mm-hmm. and um, clearly that didn't dissuade you um, was it was it a long hard haul and I'm, I'm guessing you started with a very small staff. Now I'm, I've seen a couple of people floating around while I w- walked into the entryway, and so I have no sense of how you've grown, except I know I see Koval trucks now, and um, I just see lots about Koval
1: everywhere. When we started, it was a lot of very good, hard work. Rewarding work, but it was a lot of work. I mean, my my husband you know, we had a baby and we were at the distillery working together every day. I would leave at around 10 at night. Uh, My husband would come back at around two in the morning. There were times where we slept there overnight on a couch that was like made for just maybe one sardine, let alone (laughs) two grown humans. Uh, But we loved working together and we're not afraid of hard work. And I feel that that you rarely accomplish anything great without working very, very hard. And I think that some people just don't understand what it takes. And my, I was lucky enough to grow up with artists as parents and, and when you see an artist working on one piece of artwork for months carefully and everything needs to be right you get a sense of of what things take and what it takes to create something amazing. And, you know, with all of the – I think that while my former career as a professor was very different on some levels, I think it prepared me very well because I had to do a lot of writing and editing and how something's not right until it's right. And I feel that just having that as a guiding principle was part of what made us successful is that we – were thorough and we worked very hard but it was rewarding because the result was good and I think that that was exciting and it still is exciting and while we started with just you know, it was just me and Robert uh, now we have over 50 employees all over wow. the world so full and part-time and we have people that work for us in Japan and in Europe and Australia and everywhere and it's That's exciting because we're building this and we're 100% independent. There are a lot of craft distilleries that have sold out in part, which I understand it's, it's very hard to do this by yourself. And if you have a nice big company helping you that, that certainly makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but we're, we're 100% independent, family owned and operated, and we're doing this in a way so that we can become a global player, but on our own terms. Mm -hmm. And that's also exciting. That it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> we still don't sleep very much. But it's exciting, and we're building something great, and we're building it in the city we love. And we're doing it with family. What could be better? Oh, that's so fantastic. Where in the process did you
0: decide we
1: want to be sure that our products are kosher? In the very beginning. I mean, this whole project is about who we are and our, it's an extension of our identities. I mean, neither of us are visual artists, but we feel that this is artistic in its own way because we're, we're not just doing a brand and buying it from somebody and bottling it. We're making everything from scratch and we're taking great pride in the entire process. And I feel that there's absolutely an art to that, to doing something, manufacturing something really well and, and, caring about how it's presented to the world. And because this is an extension of us, we're Jewish. I wanted to have a product that's, that also says to the world, this is Jewish in, in mm-hmm. the sense that this is kosher. So any Jewish person that's looking for a product that they can feel confident in, uh, that, that adheres to their world view and how they live their lives. I mean, I feel that that this does that. Um, But it's also organic, too, which is another extension of who we are. And we care about sustainable agriculture. And we care about being a manufacturer that uses a lot of grain and more and more every year. And with that in mind, you know, our buying power for raw materials also affects how they are grown. And so if we're buying a lot of organic, you know, raw materials, those farmers will plant more organic mm-hmm. raw materials. And I feel that that is good for the land. And I we have seen from the very beginning more and more opportunities to uh, work with organic farmers than when we started. And I think that that's because of companies like ours that are affecting how people plant.
0: So in reading up about Koval, I I saw a couple of instances where there was the phrase used grain to bottle Mm -hmm. um, mentality. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about, but maybe you could define that for me. Sure.
1: I mean, there are a lot of, well, you can take it back even further. When we started, whiskey production in America was controlled by a small number of companies (laughs) that were very, very large. And you could go to a liquor store and you could see hundreds of brands, but really most of those brands were made by a very small number of companies. And so so that was one element of it. Um, and when the craft movement began, you started having companies that were making products themselves. And it's sort of, there were two schools that developed. One was an approach where a craft company would, would come into the market they wouldn't want to make the product themselves, but they would want a brand, which is fine. Everyone wants to send their kids to piano lessons. So they would buy product from one of these large companies and use their branding and sell it. And And that's what they would do. Sometimes they would um, blend products themselves. There are some uh, very popular sort of craft type companies who are have now recently been purchased by very large companies. but And they would do blending. So there's an art to that for sure. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of one school, but they weren't necessarily starting with the grain. So we wanted to do things differently and we wanted to do them differently on a number of levels. First, we wanted to control the entire process from start to finish. So we wanted to work with farmers. We wanted to source the grain. We wanted to mill the grain on site. We wanted to mash it, distill it, literally be engaged and involved in the entire process from start to finish, from the actual grain itself until it goes into the bottle. And that is what we do. But we also wanted to do something different with our process that made us unique And that is that Robert, as I said, grew up distilling uh, with his family in Austria, and they make brandies primarily. And when you're making a fruit brandy, like a Schlubbevis or something like that, when you're making a fruit brandy, uh, and in Austria, it's often with apricots or pears, is that you would only use the best part of the distillate that comes off the still. And the way it works is when you're distilling something, it comes off the still in three parts, heads, hearts, tails, heads have chemical compounds in them that will make you go blind and crazy if you drink them. So hopefully everybody that makes distilled spirits cuts those off, which we do very stringently. Then you have the hearts, which is the purest part of the distillates, the pure ethanol. And that is the brightest, cleanest, most true essence of whatever it is you're distilling. Then you have the tails. Tails will not make you go blind and crazy like the heads. They're, they're, it's usable, drinkable alcohol, but it has different chemical compounds in it. Some, a lot of fusel oils, a lot of the same chemical compounds that you might find in vinegar and other, other sorts of things that make it by itself taste and smell like a wet dog. Mm. So, we didn't want to use that. And a brandy maker would never use that because that would muddy the flavors and aromas of a pear or an apricot. You've got delicate raw materials. Mm -hmm. You want them to shine through. And so since that's Robert's background, we felt, well, why wouldn't we give the same attention to this heart cut When we're distilling grains like a rye and or a wheat or a bourbon or a millet or any of the grains that we use, and so we did that, and that is actually revolutionary in America because, uh, as I said, there most of these very large companies are making millions and millions of gallons of whiskey for the entire world, and they are not doing stringent heart cuts. They're using the hearts and tails. Oh, interesting. To some degree, putting it in a barrel letting it age for a good period of time. Some of them add caramel coloring, some don't, maybe. Um, and it creates a product that a lot of people enjoy, but it's different. It is not like what we are doing. What we are doing is a product that is incredibly clean and bright and green forward. And so we've pioneered a new style of distilling. And because of our consulting work, you know, we've educated now about 3,500 people in the art of distilling and starting a distillery. And we teach this approach of ours. And you'll see a lot of these craft distilleries because we're, craft distilleries were smaller. We don't need to make millions of gallons of product. We've got a much more targeted audience. And and so we can do that. And we can make products with just the heart cut. And I think that it, it's a different approach, and it's a more refined approach to the palate, in my opinion, and um, and allows us to create a real exclusive type uh, whiskey. Wow, that's that's such a great description,
0: and it also makes you want to taste the product right now, even though it's, I'd say, about 10 a.m. where I am now. <laughs> and that's clearly been my experience with with all the Koval products that I personally have have tried and have bottles of at home. Oh my goodness, I totally lost track of time. I'm having so much fun here. Let's continue this conversation in episode 21, which would be part 2. And lastly, I want to let everybody know that we will have a special cocktail recipe from Koval that you'll be able to find on our website so you can join the fun in the privacy of your own home. (laughs) And you can find it on the website, which is thebigschmeer.com Schmear is spelled s-c-h-m-e-a-r and um, sonnet i just want to thank you so much for taking time to come in and chat with me about all things (laughs) spirit-like my pleasure my pleasure and i want to thank everyone for listening to the big Schmear today our recording engineer is mary Mazurik, and our editor and mix engineer is steve robinson The Big Shmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out TheBigShmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. If you like The Big Shmear, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Shmear. Thank you for listening and happy cocktails.